Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. It is Wednesday, July 26th. There's a lot of reasons why Barbie opened to a massive 162 million domestic this past weekend, 356 million worldwide. It's a well-known toy property, a fresh take by director Greta Gerwig, great casting, a bold move by Mattel to let Gerwig take risks with the IP. And yes, the Barbenheimer phenomenon. But today we're talking about an important and maybe undervalued element, the marketing. Warner Brothers sold the crap out of this movie. And more than just spending money, they strategically broadened out Barbie, ostensibly a property that appeals to young girls, maybe their moms, into an event that felt urgent and important to everyone. It might seem easy, but that's definitely not these days when it's so hard to break through the cultural clutter. So how'd they do it? The truth about Hollywood studio movies is that the campaigns for most of the big tentpoles start as soon as the film goes into production, sometimes before. It costs at least $100 million to open one of these movies worldwide. David Herron, the film researcher, said on this show last week that he thinks the Barbie campaign cost about $140 million or even more. They did a lot of the usual stuff. The first image of Barbie was unveiled at CinemaCon. They did a trailer parodying 2001, A Space Odyssey, to show people this movie might be a little bit subversive. A bunch more materials were sort of breadcrumbed out as the campaign went along. But Warners did a lot more. Unique stuff. I first realized they weren't screwing around when that real-life Barbie dream house appeared in Malibu. That was a partnership with Airbnb, one of literally hundreds of tie-ins and promos that Warners and Mattel signed up. Flow from Progressive, a Barbie boat cruise, so many fashion tie-ins, Gap, Bloomingdale's, luggage brands, sneaker brands. And all the social media activity, some of it paid for, a lot of it earned, and we'll get into that. All in a really interesting campaign, a case study for how movies, when properly marketed, can still catch the zeitgeist like almost nothing else in culture. So I've got Josh Goldstein in here to talk about it all. Josh is the president of Worldwide Marketing for Warner Brothers. He manages the campaigns for all the studio's movies, a job he's had since 2021, after long stints at Universal and Sony. He and his team did a really nice job on Barbie. So we'll get into all of that today on the show. It's Selling Barbie. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. 
We are taping this on Tuesday. How was your Monday, Josh? <laughs> uh, listen, I've been in the business for, you know, a little over 30 years, and uh, this was one of the great Mondays of, of my career. I mean, it was an extraordinary moment for the studio, for our filmmakers, for the department. And, you know, what was really exciting was just watching how the movie continued to kind of just grow over the course of the weekend. And we saw some international results that were very outsized as well. So this is one of those kind of great Mondays. They're, they aren't always like this, but when they are, you need to celebrate them. Absolutely. So you did a trade interview this past weekend where you said that in 35 years of doing this job, this is one of the most unique experiences you've ever had. And they didn't follow up and ask why. So I want to ask why was this one of the most unique experiences you've ever had? I just have never worked on a movie that's so penetrated the zeitgeist of the culture. And when, you know, going out to the Century City Mall and seeing just a sea of pink and the degree to which old and young and to me, you know, to see a movie, you know, with a sort of female demographic just absolutely taking charge of the marketplace and the ubiquity to which this story and this brand kind of connected from every corner of the digital world, the fashion, to insurance in every way, the culture kind of embraced pink and embraced what Barbie was about in a way that just frankly just had an impact that was seismic in a way that was completely unique for me. All right. So that doesn't just happen. Ten poles in the summer, they all have outsized marketing campaigns. They all start a year or two in advance. Take us through the inception of this campaign. When you say, okay, we're doing a Barbie movie, what are the overcomes? What are the key points? What does the marketing deck look like for this movie at the very beginning? I think what was so exciting about this movie is, you know, we read a script from Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, and it had so much on its mind. And it was not the Barbie you expect. And then we had this sort of early presentation and, and the filmmakers really delivered us something that was so interesting and provocative. And I think for us, it was really wanting to sort of meet the movie and then unlock its true marketing potential. And I think you really have to sort of begin to break that down between what is its marketability and then ultimately what is the, the movie itself and what is its playability and its satisfaction for an audience. And I think that we saw in the earliest presentation of the movie this opportunity to take a brand that was, in fact, very familiar to people and deliver it in a way that was completely unfamiliar and to really create a sort of a sense of surprise and discovery. I think it was ultimately to take the movie and present something unexpected and a sense of discovery about it. And we set some goals for ourselves, which was we wanted to be the biggest female-driven IP movie. And so, you know, that's a pretty high number. And then you go about asking yourself, well, how do you achieve that? And part of it is by defying expectations and taking what people know and twisting it. I think that there was a sense of nostalgia that was both powerful for us, but it's also something that we wanted to defy. You also sort of had to overcome that, right? Because there is an association with Barbie that people have that it's like a lot of things. It's for some people and it's definitely not for other people. And you managed to overcome that. So how does what you what you just said, how does that take shape? 
Well, part of it is, is how do you defy expectations and how do you understand and create the, you know, the broadest possible tent for people to be invited into? And I think, you know, working with Greta, we came up with, you know, sort of partly sort of inspired by some things that she had said, this copy line about for anyone who loves Barbie and for anyone who hates Barbie. And that obviously is a, you know, is a very broad spectrum of people, but it also acknowledges that people have unique and different relationships with this toy over time and its relationship to how women are represented. And that for some people, it was very empowering. And for some people, it actually was a sign in which things that needed to be changed. And I think, you know, on the Mattel side, they've done a very good job evolving that brand. But I think for us, we had to present and offer people more than what they expect from a Barbie movie. And I think the very first piece of it was where we put that first piece of material. We had already put out a single image of the movie at CinemaCon, and it was Margot Robbie as Barbie with the dream house in the background. And we saw how that image really took off. But I think the first thing that we did that really set the tone in terms of defying expectation was it was Christmas time, six plus months before the movie comes out, and you have Avatar as the big movie in the marketplace. And here it is, a sort of 3D sci-fi adventure. And we said, we're going to plant a flag for Barbie. And we were inspired by the homage to Kubrick from the beginning of the film. And, you know, you that sort of familiar Strauss m- music of all those Zarathustra and you sort of that, that very familiar 2001 element. And what it did was it said, this is not the Barbie you think it is. And it, it set out to suggest something very bold and very different, which was really very much understanding the vision that Greta had for the movie and that the filmmakers had for the movie. But I think internally, that was one of the most debated pieces of marketing I've ever worked on. And I've worked on a lot of movies. And it was about defying those expectations that was really powerful. And I think what it did do is it created curiosity. And curiosity for us was such a powerful tool on this campaign. Because normally, you'll do some market research and it says, oh, we want to know more story. And so that's what you do. You give them more story. But in this case, we didn't actually give the audience exactly what they wanted when they wanted it, we actually took them on a journey and we wanted their own curiosity and their own engagement to actually have them lead themselves down a really interesting journey. And we sort of dubbed it the sort of breadcrumb strategy that the audience would actually follow us in the movie on a journey. And you use the word hate in your materials, which is like marketing 101. You don't tell someone to buy a product that they hate. Without question. And I think, you know, <laughs> and, and there was a lot of debate around that. And And frankly, the willingness to use a word like hate in a copy line is actually the degree to which we acknowledge that we're we're willing to sort of break some of the rules. I mean, imagine working with a corporation and Mattel and telling them that we're going to talk about hating Barbie. And yet, to their credit, I think that they recognize that for this brand and this movie to both embrace Greta's vision of the film and to reach the broadest possible audience. And this was sort of their phrase, which was they were going to have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So let's talk about the Mattel relationship here, Mm -hmm. because obviously you must have had a lot of back and forth with them. First of all, what was the number of marketing partnerships you had on this? Do you even know? Literally, it kept growing and growing and growing. So, I mean, there were some big core promotions that we did with Progressive, with General Motors and various things like that. But literally, partners kept coming on, whether it was Bumble, whether it was Google, whether, you know, it just kept growing and growing. And so like a hundred? 
it could literally sit in that in that range. And we had this unbelievable support from Zaslav on down in terms of Warner Brothers Discovery and really recognizing what our kind of company cross-promotional stuff can do. And when you have a network where you can literally create an HDTV Barbie Dreamhouse show, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, that didn't surprise me. What surprised me was Barbie on Inside the NBA. Yes. Well, I think, <laughs> listen, we literally put a 90-second Barbie spot on uh, game seven of uh, the quarterfinals, and it was a pretty exciting game. And it was about defying expectation and being in places that allowed us to make a statement. And I think w- with Mattel, what I would say is they were remarkable partners in that they really wanted to be able to see where and how far this character could go into the world. And, and I think they were really brave in following us. So what did you guys do and what did Mattel do vis-a-vis the partnerships? Were these all partners that you guys signed up or were these partners that Mattel brought on? I want to understand a little bit how that works. Sure. Promotions was the product of the Motion Picture Group. There was licensing, you know, in terms of some of the apparel licensing that was done. But really, Mm -hmm. the promotions were, you know, with outside corporations and things like that. That was all done through the Motion Picture Group and done through the marketing group. And Louise Soper and her team just did a really wonderful job reaching out and and making these connections. And, and, you know, Flo shows up, you know, a pink apron at the premiere and it created a sensation. So I think that the way in which these brands kind of met each other, I think the work also had a sense of whimsy and fun that felt sort of organic to the movie. So you guys took the lead on most of these mm-hmm. partnerships. Interesting. And how does that work? How does money change hands in these relationships? Is it in kind or is, like, do they pay to be associated? Do you guys pay them? How does that work? So in a situation like this, what we're really doing is we're creating advertising that is part of their media buys that, mm-hmm. you know, the progressive will do on behalf of both their own business, but by doing a commercial where you're basically doing home insurance for Barbie's dream house and her fabulous Corvette, I think you both get an acknowledgement of the relationship and the ubiquity of Barbie and the culture, but you're also actually selling the insurance in a way. So you're really partnering with them in the materials and then they're actually leading the media. But we want to always coordinate those kind of media buys so that we're all working together to create the broadest possible audience. So they're buying the media, but you are providing the IP and the help with the advertising for free in order to make that partnership work for your benefit. Yeah. And, but I think what's also really just sort of interesting about this is that these promotions also signify to the culture the degree to which this is more than just a movie. And part of the work that we did was we wanted the marketing to become a movement. And I think part of what we've seen achieved here is the degree to which the marketing itself has sort of taken on a life of its own. And I think everyone has become their own sort of evangelist for what is really a Barbie movement and a pink movement and an empowerment of, of women and females and girls. And I think it's been something really extraordinary. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, 
you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, so let's talk about this, the paid media versus earned media, because this did become a phenomenon. And, you know, we've talked a lot on the show about how these studios these days, you hope for this to happen, but you don't know. You don't know what's going to take off online, what's going to become viral on TikTok. So when you first saw the Barbenheimer meme appear, what went through your head? Well, there were some early pre-indicators of it, which was Mm -hmm. just as we started putting out imagery for our movie, and Oppenheimer put out imagery for their movie, you just had a scenario where the demographics of the two movies were just very different. You had the archetype of Christopher Nolan delivering a extraordinary kind of drama in that way that had a certain apocalyptic seriousness about it. And you had, on the other side, an extraordinary filmmaker like Greta Gerwig when working with Margot Robbie to do something that was sort of a pure joy delivery system. So there were some early indicators as we started seeing some early memes of, you know, this house next to that house and the sort of the imagery of sort of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Did you freak out? You say, oh, no, are we going to get dragged down by this? No, actually, I think from the beginning, I think we just felt like it was, you know, cultural engagement. But that was sort of the early sort of seeds of it. But I think something extraordinary happened. Because normally the world breaks down into us versus them. And it's sort of you're either team Oppenheimer or team Barbie. And the Internet has become a sort of tool so much for sort of dividing people and these wedge issues. And something remarkable happened, which was instead of actually trying to create this fission between these two movies or create a sort of a competition in that way, it ultimately kind of became Barbenheimer. And I think when that started happening and then... That became this idea that you can see both of them, but also that it was a celebration of movie going. And I think that. But did you do anything to help that along? Like, what did your social media team do to help seed that sense of both movies can succeed rather than pitting them against each other? Or did it just happen? Like, I want to know, how did you put your finger on the scale? I think in this particular case, that what really happened was a pure sense from the audience that they could do that. But I think what's really extraordinary is that it really kind of emerged organically. You know, I yes, I, I think that maybe on the universal side, there was a little bit more effort in terms of talking about some of that. But really for us, we were running a campaign on so many different levels. And this kind of came up in a really kind of unique way that I think recognized the joy of mo- movie going and the possibility of this collective experience. And I think it, frankly, it brought more people to the movies for both films in a way that was really quite dynamic. Oh, I think the numbers show that. I mean, if you look at the number of people, it was 6% of people who saw Oppenheimer 
did so because Barbie was sold out, according to one of the surveys we cited from the quorum. But I wonder, were you in contact with Universal during this time? I mean, you used to work there. You know Michael Moses very well, who is the head of marketing there. Were you guys talking about this, saying like, oh my God, what is going on? Um, listen, Michael is an extraordinary old colleague and a, and a good friend. We were not coordinating these campaigns, but I think that we were certainly watching what they were up to and they were certainly watching what we were up to. And I think that it did become a bit of a dance in a way, um, and, you know, but I think ultimately it was in the service of movie going and the collective consciousness of the audience that wanted to be part of something. And I think that's what was really incredibly exciting. And I, and I love the way, frankly, that it actually was about the unity rather than the division. And then, frankly, the results of the weekend you know, are extraordinary for both movies. I mean, this is one of the most successful weekends in the history of the movie business. What's terrifying, I think, for someone in your shoes, though, is the organic nature of it all. And we've seen this on several movies now in the post-COVID era where the success sort of hinges on whether these movies take off on social media. And we saw it with Minions last summer, Super Mario Brothers. We've seen it, you know, with Megan and a couple of these other movies. How do you think about that issue? Do you say, okay, in meetings, how are we going to get this to be something that 22-year-olds talk about on TikTok? And is that even something that you can control or seed? Or is it just a crapshoot? And if it is a crapshoot, then how do you craft a campaign not knowing whether the most important part of it is going to happen? Sometimes when you're thinking about what a campaign is up to, you know, you have to kind of go in there, you know, and have a kind of military sense of precision. You're a general kind of pushing forward to that. But sometimes you also are responding to what the culture is happening. And so you go from being a general leading the army to actually playing jazz and you're really responding to the improvisation that's sort of taking place. The answer is you're always trying to think about how do you engage the audience? And when we look at the sort of media landscape and how people engage, you know, the ability to reach a younger audience is paramount that you fundamentally understand to meet them where they are. And you're actually always thinking about this, the story and the elements of the storytelling and how this can become participatory and create that engagement. And I think that what was really exciting about this campaign is that every area of the department participated, right? There was a fashion side of this. There was Margot's juxtaposition of her outfits relative to some of those classic Barbie looks were extraordinary. There was, as you said, promotions. It was all of these different areas and it started becoming, you know, and driving this conversation. So I think we were driving conversations in the digital space in multiple, multiple levels. And you're always going to be trying to put out little seeds of things that will create engagement. You know, in the case of once we did our second trailer and we did the Barbie meme generator is you just saw. That was the this Barbie is so and so this Barbie is so and so. Right. That felt like it was everywhere. Right. And so part of it is, is, yes, that's a very strategic idea that, you know, Cameron Curtis and his digital team came up with to engage the population and the audience in, in a really dynamic way. But I think that that doesn't take off unless you've already generated the desire and the engagement and the curiosity to actually be part of something. And I think that's what was really exciting about it. So what is the lesson from this past weekend? I mean, I wrote a piece in, in my Puck newsletter about how there may not be a lesson 
this may just be a fluke that this Barbenheimer thing took off the way it did. I think Barbie probably would have been successful regardless based on the campaign you guys did. But I don't know that we would have seen these numbers had this confluence of events not happened and these two movies took off in a way that eventized both of them. Do you agree with that? Or do you take away specific lessons from this weekend? I think that there's always learnings that you can have. And I'll give you some thoughts about those learnings. But, you know, the question is, is can you flip a switch and duplicate it easily? You know, all behavior is multi-determined. And so this was a confluence of a lot of events that happened. But a couple of things, I think there's some important things to take away from the weekend. One is that Greta Gerwig is one of the great geniuses of, you know, filmmakers of our time. And she truly is a unicorn and we just was just grateful to work with her. I think that there's a lot of assumptions about what female-driven IP can do in the marketplace. And this, you know, was extraordinary for to the degree to which a movie that was significantly weighted towards a female def- demographic, this is female IP, did spectacular business. And I just think that that's an exciting thing for the industry to see. But it wasn't all women. What was it? What was the women number? 62%, something like that? It was about 65%. But I think what's exciting is a women-led IP brought men along. And I think that's what Mm -hmm. was also exciting. There was the date night of it. It was fathers and daughters coming. You know, there was the LGBTQ contingent of it, you know, which was obviously significant in this way. But I just think for the industry, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that I think this shattered. And I think that was really, really exciting. You know, from the Barbenheimer front, I think that it says that there is something special about being part of a shared, unique experience. And to get people off their couches, off their phones, you can create these kind of cultural events. And what's amazing and exciting to me is that you actually need 360 degree marketing. Everyone has to do interdisciplinary work. You have to have a department full of tremendous, you know, engaged, thoughtful team. But when you engage on every level and you think about why does this story matter to people and why does this narrative and why has this doll teach us something about being human and you see all of those elements and you can still have another epic movie that you know takes on big themes, that there is room for an extraordinary weekend at the movies that everyone, you know, they can have their cake and eat it too. There doesn't have to be losers, but also that a movie can light the culture on fire in a really dynamic way. And the Barbenheimer was part of that conversation. But how do you do that again? How do you do that with another movie that may not have all of that Barbie had going for it? There's no question that duplicating it is is a challenge. And But part of what's exciting about the business is Every narrative has its elements. What are those marketability? Where does that marketability stand? You know, we all think, oh, this genre is tired and then something new comes along and captures the imagination. I think what was exciting also about this weekend is that these were first installments. One's an original, you know, drama thriller. And while we are based on IP, this was the first discovery. And I think part of what it shows you is that when you have discovery and when you have curiosity, you can have a level of engagement that can defy expectations in a digitally connected world. Well, hopefully now, seeing the success that Mattel has had with this, other IP owners and frankly, other studios will take more risks with their IP and say, maybe we shouldn't just do the cookie cutter version of this that we think the fans want. We should take a little bit more risk. 
So I think that will probably be one of the bigger lessons from this weekend. I think that's a great lesson from this weekend because, you know what, define expectation, building curiosity, being, you know, you know, I know disruptive isn't, you know, it's a bit of a cliche in this way, but I think it was a narrative that touched deep. And I think that even for all the marketing we've done, the movie is an incredibly surprising experience. It's incredibly emotional, funny in unexpected ways. I think it has a tremendous heart. And that's really the product of Greta as a storyteller and filmmaker. And I think bold, brave choices is the future of how the movie business will continue to matter to the culture in a really exciting way. And great stories will always find their audiences. Got to be more aggressive than ever. All right. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate the time. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. We are back with the call sheet, my daily prediction. Craig, did you see Barbie finally? No, I, you know, I was so lazy and I assumed that I could just pop into a theater over the weekend. I haven't seen Barbie or Oppenheimer. I know. It's like Taylor Swift out there getting a ticket to Barbie. It really is. But, uh, and it, it, it doesn't seem like it's slowing down. I, it's, it's Tuesday afternoon when we're recording this and I still can't get a ticket. Yeah. The box office on Monday was insane. Over $26 million on a Monday. Biggest ever for Warner Brothers. And that actually leads to my prediction because I made a little bit of fun of the Barbie Oscar campaign that seemed to have started before the movie was even out. But I actually think if it continues on this trajectory and it makes seven, eight, nine hundred million dollars worldwide, my prediction is Barbie will get a Best Picture Oscar nomination. So is, is that just because at, at a certain point when a movie exceeds expectations to a degree like Barbie is doing? You kind of can't avoid it and you need to give it a nomination just because the public likes it so much. You know what? These days with the Academy having raised the number of nominees for Best Picture to 10 and with so much pressure on the Oscars to gain relevance with the people that watch it, there has sort of been the blockbuster slot. I mean, last year it was Top Gun Maverick. And there have been others recently, you know, Black Panther got a Best Picture nomination. Like there have been others that have kind of gotten in there based on their success and their sort of well-done populist movie slot. This has the added benefit of being directed by Greta Gerwig, who gets Oscar nominations. She's nominated for Little Women. And she wrote the movie with her partner, Noah Baumbach, who is a Oscar person as well. So I think the Academy members will look at this and see, you know what, we've got to reward big, populist, well-executed movies. And if we're going to do it, these two are filmmakers that we can stomach. And it's the most successful opening weekend uh, by a female director ever. Exactly. That'll be the narrative. Yeah, she'll get a nomination, I would uh, imagine, too. It certainly won't win. But, you know, there'll be others. Those screenplay will get nominated. The costuming, the production design, maybe Gosling, maybe. But it could be the, you know, the comedic supporting actor nom that sometimes gets in there. Maybe this will be what brings the Oscars out of its slump. If, if Barbie <laughs> is not, they should have Margot Robbie host the Oscars as Barbie. I know. Actually, she would be great hosting the Oscars. If, if the strike ends, they should get her. They should get her and maybe Gosling. Her and Gosling. Her and Barbie and Ken hosting the Oscars. I don't think that's probably a conflict of interest, but. No, they'd do it. Although, you know, Disney probably wouldn't love that because they want some synergy with uh, ABC and, and the host. But I think that would be amazing. Is that allowed? Can, can a nominee host the Oscars or no? There's no rules. They could do whatever they want. It's not like it impacts the voting. The voting is yeah. already done. Listen, the Oscars are in a bad place. They need something. And the nice thing about Barbie is that it's in the wheelhouse of the core audience for the Oscars, which is typically 
women and particularly older women. And if those women see that Barbie has multiple nominations, they may be mobilized to show up and watch the Oscars, whereas something like Top Gun or even Avatar, the core audience for those movies were more male-oriented, who people who don't typically watch the Oscars as closely as, as women do. So perhaps Barbie getting a bunch of nominations would juice the ratings. I'm sure the Academy would love it. Yeah, they could have a lot of fun with it from a marketing perspective. And hopefully too. you will have seen the movie by next March when the Oscars happen. Yeah, hopefully a ticket opens up at Century City by then. We'll see. <laughs> you should get in line now. Yeah. Um, all right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Josh Goldstein. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. Only two shows this week. I'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.